This is exactly right. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has all of that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. I got in contact with Ann Rule and I said, yeah, well, they thought you were going to do a book about this story. And she said, well, I was, but it was just too hard to do. I wasn't going to spend all that time going over 20 years of murders. And I went, okay, well, I guess ignorance is bliss. I didn't know what I was getting into until I stepped in it. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, as well as the co-host of the new show, Buried Bones, both on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Diane Fanning is a best-selling true crime author with true crime underlined several times. Her first book is called Through the Window. She talked to me about how that book came to be and about her time with the serial killer at the center of it. I have 15 true crime books and 11 mystery novels. How long have you been doing this? Since 2001 is when I got my first contract. Okay, 20 years. So you know your way around a true crime story. Yeah, sometimes I wonder why, but yes, I do. (laughs) Tell me about Through the Window. The book that I wrote that impacted my life the most was Through the Window. And the reason it had such an effect on me and why I wrote it goes back to when I was nine years old. I was walking through my neighborhood with a friend of mine, and we lived in a place that was part rural and part suburban. So you'd go through a field of corn and then you'd see houses and then you'd go past a field of cows and see more houses. We were walking downhill in front of a field of cows when this car came to a stop and he asked us for directions. We were trying to explain to him how to get to where he wanted to go. And he said, you know, I'm not understanding it. Could you come show it to me on the map? So I walked up to his car He'd thrown open the door 
And instead of a map, he was exposing himself. And he grabbed my upper arm and started pulling on me. I was pulling back as hard as I could, but I was a pretty little kid. And I was about to lose that battle. Wow. When suddenly over the hill came another car and he laid on his horn and the guy that had hold of me let go and sped off with his door flapping open. When he drove off, I remembered what Sergeant Friday would want me to do because I was a big fan of Dragnet. So I memorized his license plate number. And I just kept repeating it over and over in my head on my way home. And I told my mom, she called the police. A couple days later, they spotted him, pulled him over. And in the trunk of his car, they found the evidence that one month before he had sexually assaulted and murdered an eight-year-old girl. Oh my gosh. I was glad that he was stopped. But at the same time, I had questions. My two biggest questions were, one... Why did he pick me? And two, oh, how could anybody even do that? But how do you answer those questions if you're just a kid? Back then, if you were a kid, you couldn't go into the adult section of the library without your parents' permission. So I got that, and I was signing out criminal psychology books and poring over them. And a lot of it, when I first started reading, I didn't understand. But I figured the more I read, the more it would start making sense to me. And so I did. I read through it. And then, of course, I thought about that incident from time to time throughout my life. And then you told me that you learned about serial killer Tommy Lynn Sells and one of his survivors. Tell me that story. So it wasn't until I sat down one day to watch 48 Hours and saw this story about a serial killer and saw the brave 10-year-old girl, Crystal Searles, who had been in a bedroom with her friend when the serial killer came in there and assaulted and sliced the throat of her friend and then turned to her on the top bunk of the bed and ran the knife across her throat and left her for dead. So when she heard the car pull off, she got up and went outside at the nearest door and started going at 4 a.m. in the morning up a dirt and gravel road past Cactus and scorpions, and tarantulas, and God knows what else. She walked past one neighbor's house, which was about a half a mile away, because she was told never to go there. They weren't good people. And she kept going to the next house. And in that house was a very nice man who was indulging in one of his lifetime habits, starting to watch the new year come on the TV with the earliest place that New Year hit. So he was watching Australia and into Asia, and he was watching all of this when she comes knocking on his door. And she doesn't know it, but because she can't speak, she has serious damage. Her vocal cords are cut, and she's bleeding. She's got this huge clot of blood under her neck. Remind me how old she was? Ten years old. And Herbert invites her into the house, At first, she refuses to lay down on his sofa and insists on laying on the kitchen floor because she doesn't want to ruin his furniture. She tells this all with notes, and she tells him to get the cops. Everyone's dead. So they call for an ambulance. They call for the cops. And Crystal was airlifted out of Del Rio, Texas, to a hospital in San Antonio. When she got in there, she was immediately rushed to surgery. When she got out, 
Again, she was asking for a pad of paper and a pen, and she wrote, get the cops. And the police came, a Texas Ranger came, and they brought a forensic artist. And that little 10-year-old girl who could not speak was still able to communicate well enough that the artist got a rendering of him. And within an hour, they knew exactly who they were looking for. And they arranged to go out and have him arrested. What an amazing story of survival. Yes, it is. And if you saw her sitting up on the witness stand, you could still see vividly the scar across her neck. And she was dressed in pink and looking like the sweetest thing in the world. And she sat up there and raised her finger and pointed it right at cells. That takes a lot of courage. Some adults have serious problems with doing something like that. And yet she did it. And she was instantly my hero. I had to write her story. So I sat down and threw together a chapter and I figured, what the heck, what do I have to lose? I've been trying to get an agent and failing for so long. So I shot off an email to Jane Distel with a sample chapter. And within 24 hours, I had an agent. She walked me through everything. I didn't know how to write a book proposal. She walked me through that, helped me edit it. And then she submitted it. And I've got two different publishers offered me two book deals based on that chapter and my proposal. And then I was off and running. And then something incredible happened, especially for an author writing her first book. The serial killer agreed to meet with you for a series of interviews, which is totally not normal. Tommy Lincells couldn't even keep track of his own murders, right? We first started with his crimes, and it was very bizarre listening to him talk about all of them. But he started with the ones he wasn't sure which was his first murder, but he gave me two. He said it could be one of these. I discovered through this and many other crimes he talked about that he always wanted to find a way to blame his victim. So in this case, he said he broke into the house because he was hungry. And he showed that he got into the refrigerator. He drank a bottle of milk out of the refrigerator. And he had a little cheap, cheesy Saturday night special kind of gun. And he'd never used it before. But when the homeowner woke up and came out there, he shot at him to escape. He just basically just shot at him, didn't stick around to find out anything and left. The homeowner did die. And Sells explained why he did it. He said, because That man was abusing his son. There is no other evidence anywhere at any time that that man did that. But what is the psychology behind that? Is it to make himself look good to other people? What is it? I think both to some degree. He justifies it in his own mind. And then I think it sort of becomes a truth for him. He kept going, traveling across the country, in all sorts of parts of the country, He went up to Oregon. He killed two girls there. He went back to the East Coast. He went to his hometown, which is near St. Louis, Missouri, to visit his family. But what would happen with him was that every time he got into a fight, first with his mother and then later with a wife, he would take off and go kill somebody. Okay, so that's his coping mechanism. Yes, I think he probably wanted to kill the person close to him, but he had sense enough to know that he would get caught. So he just began this ragtag life of popping around all over the country. 
And sometimes he would do the oddest things. He was arrested in Wyoming for stealing tires off a truck. But why did he steal the tires? Because there's this young guy and his pregnant wife whose tires were bald. It was just too dangerous for them to be driving anywhere, but they were going to need to go to the hospital at some point. And so he stole tires from another truck to give them to this guy. It somehow buried in him was a, a little bit of an altruistic impulse. That's the scary thing about serial killers. They aren't just all monsters. You can't look at them and see it in their face. I had a forensic scientist tell me something that I think is pretty interesting. She said that serial killers have morals, they have feelings, they're just totally different than most of society's morals and feelings. So they have their own standards and their own lines to not cross, but they're separate from the rest of us. Exactly. And when I asked him about one crime that the DA was suspicious that he had committed, he said, I wouldn't ever do that. I wouldn't rape an old woman. Of course, he raped young women and women, but the thought of doing it to a woman in her 60s was just abhorrent to him. It's very unusual. Let's go back and talk about your approach to Tommy Lynn Sells, who is the serial killer in the story. So you just, what, wrote him a letter and said, hi, I'm an author and I'm writing a story and I want to talk to you. And he said, sure. Basically, that was it. Wow. And in a way, I just got lucky. He had been given the death penalty in September of 2000. And then he had been in the prison up in Livingston on death row. Then he was moved down in connection with another case to the county jail, Bear County Jail in San Antonio. I, at the time, was living in a little town outside of San Antonio. So it was easy for me to make my way in to see him. And so I wrote him a letter and I was honest with him about what I was going to do. I didn't use any trickery, but he was sitting in there. He had not had a single visitor since he went off to prison. So that's why he said yes, because he just wanted to see somebody. And at first, he did not want to talk to me or answer my questions the way I wanted him. He wanted to talk to me about how much money I was going to send him, what I was going to pay him. And I told him I can't do that. It's not ethical. So then we got down to business a little bit. And then he wanted to call me at home and he wanted sex talk calls, which I had to chew him away on that one, too. And finally, we got down to a serious interview. He wanted dirty talk on the phone. Gross. Yeah, he wanted me to give him my phone number so that I could talk sexy to him on the phone, which is kind of disgusting, but I imagine it's kind of normal for men who are locked up. Okay, can you tell me a little bit about him and what led him to all of this? The only time I felt any sympathy at all for Sells was when he talked about his childhood. It was awful. He was born a twin, and when he was 18 months old, him and his twin both got extremely ill. And his sister passed away. Right after that, his mother was planning on moving and she asked her aunt to take care of her son while she did the move because he was so little, he'd get in the way all the time. So she took him in and then his mother just sort of forgot about him. And he was there for three years and suddenly it was time for him to go to school. And by this time, Tommy had integrated with her family. 
She had two teenage girls. They loved him as much as they could love a new little brother because he had been so little when he came there. And there was a strong attachment. And when she called and asked his mother to get some papers saying that she had guardianship of him, or even she said she would adopt him if that was wanted, but she needed some papers to give her the authority to register him for school. Well, Nina's mother got extremely upset at that. And she came and got him, took him out of that house, and would not let him see his aunt or his cousins ever again. Then, a little while later, when she kind of got tired of him when he was seven, she let him go to live with a pedophile. Oh, no. Did she know that? She claimed later that she didn't, but I think that she probably had heard the rumors. This is a mother who had a number of other children. Tommy wasn't the only one. But I think she deeply resented Tommy because she had so many boys and she wanted a girl and it was the girl that died instead of Tommy. So she was very resentful of him. So she just let him go live with this known pedophile. It doesn't justify the adult decisions that Sells made. If only he'd been saved by his aunt and been able to stay with her, maybe he wouldn't have been so messed up. We just don't know. How did he describe that story? He seemed that he was speaking from a voice of anger about it. And he talked about some of the things he would try to think about in the time that went on when he was abused over and over. He was with this guy for years. And he is a psychopath and he is a manipulator. And so those people lie. So I decided to call his mother and ask her about it and ask her, this is what Tommy told me. And I want you to tell me if any of this is wrong. So I went through everything that he told me that had happened. And she said, well, a lot of people get treated even worse. They don't go around killing people. Okay, good point. But it's also a terrible thing to say about your own child. So let's talk about him as a young man. So by the time he was 15, he was pretty much on the road. And he would come back to home from time to time to see his brothers and spend time with his mother. But he'd keep going out. He'd get angry and then go out and hit the road. And he would either steal a vehicle or on occasion he owned vehicles or he would hitchhike or he would ride the rails. And he would just grub around making a living by either going to resort towns and offering to take pictures, help people take their pictures or wash windshields, or he'd go and work at a fast food restaurant, or he'd go to one of those day labor places and wait to be picked out to go do work. He just roamed around all over the place. Well, it seems like he's actually working legitimately, but is he breaking into houses or committing any other crimes that you know of in these early years? Well, there was extensive drug use. He started drinking alcohol when he was seven, and he then started accumulating this incredibly long list of other drugs that he used and abused. And he didn't always know where he was. And a lot of the people that he murdered, of course, he didn't know their names. But he would talk about things like a black man in downtown Detroit that he killed and threw the body into a dumpster. Now, when you're talking about something like that 20 years after the fact, you're not going to remember details well, particularly if you're under the influence of drugs. And it's going to be hard to track down. And a lot of his crimes were like that. And sometimes he would get things a little mixed up. But he also had an uncanny knack for remembering tiny details, like... Toucan Sam cap hanging in someone's house 
or a Tommy Hilfiger label laying on top of a dresser. There were things that he could scrape out of his mind that really give a lot of credibility to the story he's telling. And he went on for a couple decades without being a suspect in any of these murders. Yes, he was arrested for other things, but never for murder. No one ever looked at him for murder. You said that no one ever looked at Tommy Lynn Sells for murder. Is that because of the people he was targeting? A lot of it was because he had a couple of very good streetwise habits. One, if he touched anything that he couldn't clean the fingerprints off, he took it with him. Like in his last murder, he took the screens off the windows and took them along and threw them in a the lake. So he's very good at that. And the other thing was he made it a habit of committing his crimes in small towns and then getting out of town before people even knew that the person was dead. A lot of times the bodies weren't found till much later. Some of the bodies have never been found. And some of it's been years and years before they've been found. It was in the time before DNA and in the time before state cooperation with small law enforcement groups in rural towns it was before that was established as something that was ordinary instead of extraordinary. So he picked those kind of settings, got out of town, and there was nobody looking for him. Why was he doing all of this, these random crimes? They were not all sex crimes. You really think it was anger at people who were close to him and people he felt like he couldn't act out against? Part of it was that. And then there was the fact that when I asked him... What He used all sorts of methods to kill people. And I said, which do you prefer? And he said, I like manual strangulation so I can hold their throat in my hands and watch the light fade from their eyes. He found pleasure in that power. And he also was very, very angry about, as he said, it being left behind. Back when he went to prison in Texas, George W. Bush was governor. And he used to talk about the children being left behind. And Sells adopted that line. And he said, what about me? I was left behind. And it's true that he was, but he took it as a justification for who he was. Can you give me a demographic of who his known victims were? Did he gravitate towards certain types of people? Not at first. He confessed to 50 murders and said he was only 70% done. And at first, he killed men, women, children. He didn't care. He just wanted to kill. And then when he met Fabian Witherspoon, she was a woman who was a wee bit taller than him, and she was athletic. Once he encountered her and sexually assaulted her and tried to kill her, but she fought back so ferociously, her first attack was to grab the ceramic duck on the back of the toilet and smash him in the head. In doing so, she was able to get his knife, and she cut him really bad. He ended up being in the hospital for 10 days after she got through with him. But she was left on the floor, bloodied and left for dead. But they tracked him down. Unfortunately, because that woman, Fabian, 
had had some mental health issues that she had addressed and gotten help for, the prosecutor didn't feel like he could get a conviction on the rapes and all the sexual assault part of it. So he did a plea bargain and it ended up cells only got five years in prison. This was 1992. That's terrible. Yeah. And poor Fabian carried around this guilt for a long time when she found out what Cells had done, that he got out of prison and then went around killing a lot of other people. And she felt responsible because she hadn't been able to put him in jail. But I told her, I said, because you put him away for five years, many lives were spared. But after that point, he went mostly after children and sometimes petite women but he wouldn't go after anyone his own size. He killed this woman who was like maybe 5'1", and then he killed her four-year-old son. And I said, well, he was four years old. He wouldn't be able to identify you. Why didn't you kill him? And he said, well, if I hadn't killed him, he would have been an orphan. And somehow to him, that was worse. Okay, let's get to the case that you solved, and I'm going to go ahead and summarize it. So this happened in 1997, just four months after Sells was released from prison. Ten-year-old Joel Kirkpatrick was murdered in his bedroom in Lawrenceville, Illinois, in the middle of the night. The boy's mother, Julie Ray, said she heard him screaming in the bedroom. She ran into a man wearing a ski mask. She fought him all the way to the backyard until he broke away and ran off. Joel was stabbed to death using a steak knife from their house. Julie Ray was arrested. No one believes her story. And she's sentenced to 65 years in prison. So fast forward to 2002, and you are currently interviewing Tommy Lynn Sells. You go home and watch TV for the night. Yeah. So I've got private investigators and law enforcement and families who lost a loved one calling me up with questions for him. And I was kind of sick of talking to him, to be honest. But They gave me this responsibility and I had no way to get around it. So one night I was watching a show on 2020 and the case of Julie Ray was up and there was her lawyer and her family and her friends and Julie herself saying she wasn't guilty. But I knew enough about true crime at that point that I go, yeah, that's what they all say. I was very, very skeptical until I heard what the prosecuting attorney had to say. And he said, that there were no fingerprints found in that home. Well, the house was not thoroughly dusted for fingerprints, for one. The second was that nobody goes into your home and uses a weapon from your home, like the knife from the kitchen, to commit a crime. Well, Sales had done that a lot. So I knew that was BS. And there were a couple of other things he said that I thought, okay, I'm going to explain to Sales. He got mad at the Texas Rangers because of something They asked him, that was a question from another law enforcement guy. And I told him, this is the crap that comes around and they hear about. I told him about what the district attorney said about Julie Ray and how she'd been sentenced to 65 years in prison. I told him nothing about where it was, when it happened, or any names of any people. He came back at me with, Was this maybe a murder a couple of days before the one I committed in Springfield, Missouri? Maybe on the 13th? So I looked up dates and in his letter, I mean, and that was exactly right. And he also said, listen, there are a lot of people behind bars for crimes I committed and I don't really care. 
And so I started thinking about what I could do. I knew he hadn't seen the show I'd seen because he was on death row and he didn't get any chance to watch TV. So I asked him if someone told him about the case. And he said, no, I know a lot more about murder than you do. And he had to admit that was true. So I went in to see him to get more information. And he talked to me in detail about the crime and what he had done and told me that the reason he had done it is that he met Julie at a convenience store and she was rude to him and saw that Julie had a son. And he did not want that boy to grow up and be like his mother, a rude person. So that and that he wanted her to remember how rude she'd been every time she thinks about her dead son. How unreal. What did she remember about that encounter? Anything? I know that if she was rude to him, it's probably because he used some sleazy pickup line on her. And so she just walked away. And she doesn't remember that even happening. I mean, I sure wouldn't remember somebody who did that to me. So I thought there might be something to this. And even if Cells didn't do it, then someone very much like him could have. And, you know, I was always aware of him using me and manipulating me. So I started looking around for facts and I realized the only thing I can do at this point is just put it in my book, write it in a way so that I'm not necessarily saying he did it, but I'm saying this is what he confessed to. And then somebody who knows more than I do can take that information and run with it. So I wrote it and I didn't dwell on it a whole lot. I mean, there were so many murders in the book, one after another, after another. And I just sat back and waited for something to happen. And it took two months after the book was released. And the first thing I got was an email from Julie's mother. And she was asking me if I would be willing to talk to Julie's appeals attorney. So I said, sure. So I talked to him. I shared information I had in my files about Sales. I had some of his medical records, which I shouldn't have had, really. But Sales actually sent the copies to me, so I didn't do anything wrong to get them. And so he took it before the judge, and he wanted to enter my book as evidence. And the judge read through my book. And what he learned was that there was a piece of evidence, a piece of hair in little Joel's hand when he died. And the prosecution was refusing to test that. So he told the defense attorney, he said, don't turn this book in. You'll need to use it as new evidence in the new trial. He said, and I'm going to order the district attorney to test that hair. So that moved forward and she was granted a new trial. And the day... Her family and friends were waiting in the parking lot for her to walk out of jail without a charge pending on her. Then they showed up that day from her county and rearrested her and charged her with murder again. So she never got even a hug and went back into prison. And that's when my help was enlisted by a private detective with the Innocence Project. And he had found two witnesses in that small town who had seen someone matching Sells' description that weekend in town. One of them said he'd acted inappropriately to his son and he had to tell him to buzz off. Another one said, I sold him a ticket to Winnemucca, Nevada on the bus. Now, Sells had already committed a murder in Winnemucca. And although he didn't immediately use that ticket, he got off in the interim. He then got a ride on the bus and went back to Winnemucca to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the woman he killed there. 
Did he do that regularly or is this just a one-time thing? That's the only time I knew have him paying an anniversary trip. That's crazy. Do you think this is something that many serial killers do? I mean, I know that there are trophies and revisiting the crime scene. Ed Kemper did that, but I've never heard of someone celebrating an anniversary. No, they have caught some killers who have gone back to a gravesite on an annual anniversary. I think it's very unusual, and I think part of what drove him there was he wanted to get as far away from Illinois as he could. That was part of it. And the other thing was that he knew that her body had never been found. He knew that her parents were wealthy and they'd spent a lot of money trying to find her. And only he knew where her body was. And he also knew that he put her body in a boiling hot springs and that there was probably nothing left of it. What ultimately happens with Julie Ray with that case? Julie Ray faced a new trial. I provided an affidavit for that trial. I was asked to testify, but by the time it came to trial, I'd already tangled with the prosecutor at a prisoner review board hearing, and I'd read the passage from the letter that I sent to Sells and basically made him look like an idiot. And he did not want me coming back into the courtroom and reading those words again, which he knew I would. So he just accepted my affidavit as evidence, and the affidavit was given to the jury. And I'm kind of glad because I didn't want the attention. And really, the only attention needed to be on Julie and on her innocence, not on me. Because I was really irrelevant to what she was facing. So I was glad I was kept out of the courtroom. And she ended up being acquitted. And then afterwards, she had a choice. She could go for reparations for her unlawful imprisonment, or she could go for a certificate of actual innocence. She chose the latter because she wanted justice for her son. So she passed over money in order to pursue a claim of innocence. It's ridiculous that they even have to make you choose. Why have I never heard of this before? I thought that was absolutely nuts, too. But she did eventually get her actual certificate of innocence, which meant that, according to the state of Illinois, this is as good as never happened, as if she'd never been charged, as she'd never been considered. What did the prosecutor initially say was Julie's motive for killing her son? Was it the who else could have done it kind of motive? Well, she had one big problem in her case. Well, more than one. One of them was that she was just a grad student. And her parents were retired missionaries. So nobody had the money to hire a lawyer. So she got a pro bono lawyer who, by his own admission, was in over his head. Oh, on top of that, she had an ex-husband who was now a cop. And he was very, very bitter. And they had a very bitter custody battle. And he suggested, and the sheriff jumped on it, that she killed him because her ex-husband had won custody. And the reason he won custody was because he was now remarried, had a stable home environment, and she was just a grad student. If you're in a small town and there's a kid that's dead and there's no fingerprints, what seems more likely, a mother who's going through trauma or some maniac who breaks in and manages to clean up his own mess, what's that guy's motive? Was the child sexually assaulted? No, he was stabbed to death. But here's the thing, Kate. 
Both those people who saw cells doing suspicious things that weekend, when they heard about the murder of Joel, they immediately went to the sheriff and said, I saw this man. And they said, oh, I'll send a deputy around to take your statement. The sheriff never sent a deputy around. And they knew nothing until one day when the newspaper splashed Tommy Lynn Sell's picture across the front page and they went, that's him. That's the man I saw. Does that seem right to you? Does it seem a little like Henry Lee Lucas confessing to literally more murders than he could possibly have done? Yeah, yeah. Considering he had two decades to do it, it's not that many. And the other thing is that some of his murders that he confessed to were very anonymous, so nobody could ever confirm them. But still, more than 20 of them were confirmed. Most of his victims were just regular people. One of them was homeless. Two of them that he didn't know the names of were just hitchhikers in Oregon. And there were a lot of that sort of thing. I mean, Stephanie Stroh, she was hitchhiking when he picked her up and then murdered her. And there were lots of people that he just simply encountered. And there wasn't a type. And he also said to me that he thought that Ted Bundy was a pervert because he could only kill one type of person. So Julie Ray is released and you're given all of this credit. It's your first book. You have been struggling to even find an agent, let alone a publisher. Well, you know, I'd I'd never done anything like this before. Yeah, I'd worked for newspapers, but, you know, mostly it was fluff stuff I did. It wasn't serious journalism by any stretch. And I was raised in a very sheltered life, so I didn't know what to expect. Sure, he was the most evil person I'd ever met, but I didn't know how intense that would be. And I didn't know how to compare him to anybody else. I do know that I often left there feeling tainted. And sometimes I'd feel worse when he acted normal. So like one day, he didn't want to answer any questions. All he wanted to do was tell me jokes and funny stories. And I laughed with him. And then I left there and I felt like a horrible person because I laughed with this despicable human being. I think there's a general disdain about books that focus on serial killers because it sounds like the writers might be glorifying either the crimes or the killers. How do you think your book is different from that? Because I think it's pretty different. Well, the way I can tell it's different is because for a long time, I continued to hear from the family members of victims who appreciated what I had done. And there was this one woman who had sold everything she owned and bought a travel trailer. Every once in a while, about once a month, I'd hear from her. She'd stop in a library somewhere, go in and use the internet and send me an email and tell me where she was and what she had been doing and how she still felt about sales and how angry she was that they hadn't definitely linked him to her daughter's murder. And there were people too that came up to me and would tell me things like, I read your book and I have a teenage daughter who was very naive. And if someone told her he had puppies in the car, she'd go up to the car. I made her read that book and now she's cautious. Someone approaches us, she gets behind me as a shield now. And she said, I think you saved my daughter's life. So when I get that kind of feedback, from others. It really makes me feel that I've done the right thing. I've put enough focus on the victims because to me, the victims are the most important thing in the book. 
circling back to Crystal, who is the 10-year-old girl who was attacked, she was Tommy Lynn Sell's last victim. Do you have any idea how she's doing now? Yeah, she went to college and she moved back to Kansas and she's doing pretty well, leading a normal life and trying to stay out of the spotlight most of the time. Tell me about the end of your relationship with Tommy Lynn Sells. Well, (laughs) he called it quits with me because he got new spiritual advisors and his spiritual advisors told him that I was a bad influence. So that's when we cut it off. And he was executed in April. I think it was about eight years ago. Do you think he wanted to be executed or would he have preferred to just live on death row forever and ever and ever? He liked to complain a whole lot about how horrible things were and how he just wanted to be executed. But then the next time he's talking about fighting for his life and stuff, I'm sure he had down moments when he just wanted to get it over with. But for the most part, see, he liked prison life. He told me that in a prison, you know what all the rules are. You know what you can and cannot do. There's no gray area. And out there where you all live, he says, things change all the time. Rules change all the time. Nothing is consistent. So let's sort of end on a cautionary tale. There is a danger that journalists who encounter serial killers might be manipulated. How do you know whether you're being manipulated or not if you are in a position as a journalist or someone who is communicating with someone like Tommy Lee Sells? I learned to read him better than somebody who just talked to him once. I knew where the signs were. And and to be honest with you, I used some of that to manipulate him back. And I was very careful to hide my true feelings, which for someone like me, who is very demonstrative, that was one of the most difficult things of all. But for him, he just wanted me coming back because he wasn't getting visitors much. And that was what mattered to him. And he would treat me differently all the time. Sometimes he would be angry with me. One time he was so incredibly angry that I thought he was going to rip the little table off of his side of the booth. He had hazel eyes, so they changed a lot. But this time they changed dramatically. And the anger in his face was so intense. And the shape of his face seemed to change because he was furious at something I told him that I'd gotten from a sheriff. And I was really scared. Yeah, there was the plexiglass between me and there were armed guards nearby, but I was still scared because that was the most intense rage I'd ever seen in my life. But I never thought he could harm me. I mean, after I was locked up. So I grabbed up his letters and I went in and I talked to a psychiatrist And I also talked to a psychologist, had them look at the letters and stuff. And they both said basically the same thing. They said, yes, if he gets out, he's coming straight for you. He won't be coming for you to hurt you. He'll be coming to get you to run away with him. When you don't do that, that's when he's going to hurt you. That was pretty scary. On the next episode of Wicked Words, James Stewart on murder inside the Blue Sea Cottage. Her mother just kept telling her, where are you going? Why don't you tell me where you're going? And Fritzy just says, quiet place, don't worry. 
Well, she wasn't going to a house party in Del Mar, okay? It was a cover story. The next day, her body was found on Torrey Pines Beach. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Our sound designer is Andrew Epen. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.